Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Innovation Capital, where we welcome Dr. Robert Cooper, the original creator of the world-famous Stagegate process. Dr. Cooper was named the top innovation management scholar by the prestigious U.S. Journal of Product Innovation Management and is also a fellow of the Product Development and Management Association, the PDMA. Dr. Cooper's process is now deployed by thousands of R&D teams worldwide and the majority of the Fortune 500. So welcome, Bob Cooper, to Innovation Capital. I just want to say on a broader note, a massive thank you, Bob. Our team here have consumed so much of your content over the years. Your book has literally been handed out to everyone in our organization. I can't tell you how many times your slides or content has been put into our content internally. And, and your work has been an absolute inspiration to our wider team here at PatSnap. So, Bob, what we'd love to do is I'd love to start from the beginning, your, your original Genesis story and just your background and how you ended up in this wonderful world of R&D and new product development, Bob. So we'd love to kick off with your background and, and the context around that, Bob. Sort of an interesting story of how we ended up with StageGate and all these best practices for product development. Uh, a bit of a circuitous route. I, I was a graduate engineer, had an MBA, young guy working in a small company a number of years ago. And the owner of the company who had hired me uh, fresh out of university was a brilliant innovator and had built the company on the success of a new product. And I was really in awe and amazement that he was so successful doing this. He was manufacturing process equipment. And so we decided to launch our second new product, expecting to double the size of the business yet again. And uh, lo and behold, it failed and it almost bankrupted us. And it was devastating. And at the tender age of about 25, I recall discussing this with my uh, the former thesis advisor at the university. And he said, you know, Bob, there's got to be a better way. Maybe that would be a good Ph.D. subject. Why don't you come back and do a Ph.D. in this field of innovation management and new products? And so I did. And that got me on the way, Ray, into studying companies uh, what they were doing properly, what they were doing badly, and how there there could, in fact, be a better way. And that was sort of the beginning of the story and ultimately led to the best practices and StageGate. Okay, thank you. And on a broader note, obviously, your process that you've codified has been adopted by thousands of innovation practitioner, practitioners globally now. But for our wider audience joining today, what is StageGate in a nutshell? Well, StageGate was based on research that looked at what successful entrepreneurs, or more correctly, intrapreneurs, people working for companies, uh, did in order to take an idea and drive it all the way through the various steps and stages and launch a, a successful new product. We studied dozens of these entrepreneurs within companies. And, and it was a bit, Ray, a bit like interviewing 
uh, winning football teams. If you interview enough of them after the championship is won, uh, you begin to get a picture of how to play the game. And that's exactly what StageGate was. It was a model that replicated what these folks did. And it broke the innovation process into a series of stages. Most of these guys thought of taking the project a step at a time or a stage or phase at a time, uh, such as uh, coming up with the idea and then building a business case. And another stage was developing the product and then validating the development and then launching the product. So multiple stages. But between the stages were a very key component that many models miss. And those are the gates. And the gates are sort of the, the go-kill decision points where senior management buys in and continues to support and resource the project team as they move forward. So that's where the name stage gate came from stages uh, preceded by gates to give you the go ahead and provide the resources to do the next phase of the project. So that's basically what stage gate is. And so Bob, unpacking that further, when you're on that journey of adding that gate process throughout stage gate, what was the route to that pattern recognition? Was it kind of meeting X number of innovators and spotting that pattern? What was the background of actually building out that gated methodology? How was it actually born? Well, research, as I said, Ray, was conducted on a, a large number of entrepreneurs within within companies. And I call them entrepreneurs because these were not your typical uh, fairly conservative uh, uh, project leaders. These were very dynamic, charismatic guys that drove fantastic products to market, often against all odds and often against the bureaucracy of a larger company. And and uh, I, I recall uh, some years ago, after we'd done studied about a dozen of these guys, I was asked by the dean of, of my business school, where I was a professor by that point, uh, if if I wouldn't mind giving a talk to the friends of the business school, a group of business leaders, and I'm up there on stage putting up different diagrams of showing how company X did it and company Y did it and company Z or Z did it. And, 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 and finally, some guy from the audience puts up his hand and says, Cooper, enough. We, we've, we've heard all these neat stories of company A, B and C and X, Y and, 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 and Z. How about you just pull all that stuff together, package it up and put it out as a playbook? for how to do a new product project. And that's exactly what happened, Ray. We sort of packaged all all the things these guys did, all the best practices. And it wasn't just gates, Ray, and, and stages. It was, it was about mitigating risk. It was about doing voice of customer. It was about building a robust business case. Uh, there were a number, uh, at least a dozen best practices that these folks, these, these very clever project leaders and teams did to make their projects successful. And that got built into the game plan. So stage gate is more than just stages and gates. There's a whole bunch of very, very uh, precise prescriptions for how to do different things in the process. I'm fascinated to see the rise of this methodology because it blows our mind now here when we speak to our customers every day. They always typically reference your methodology. But if we go back into a bit of a time machine do you recall how quick it scaled? Was it like a viral launch, which just went global really quick, or did it take time? How did it spread so fast? Good question, Ray. And I wish I could say it was through brilliant marketing and planning and the usual things that you use to, to launch a new approach. Uh, not so, actually. I, uh, as a professor, I happen to be 
uh, on a sabbatical at, at a U.S. university. I happened to pick uh, Orlando, Florida. My kids were pretty young in those days. And anyway, uh, I'm sitting around the swimming pool uh, wondering what to do. So I decided to take the advice of this guy that put up his hand at that conference and said, why don't you pull it all together and put together a cookbook? So I did. And I remember I fired it off to two friends of mine in, in two of the companies that I'd investigated. Uh, one of them was a company uh, called Exxon Mobil uh, Chemical, their Toronto operation. And the other one was DuPont, DuPont of Canada. I, I, I was living in Canada at the time. And both guys wrote back to me immediately. In fact, one guy phoned me immediately and he said, this is perfect. This is exactly what we should be doing. Let's implement it. And so both DuPont and Exxon Mobil implemented it. And uh, they implemented it first north of the U.S.-Canadian border in Canada. And the, the next thing you knew is the Americans were saying, what is this new system? This looks fantastic. Let's do it. And uh, when those two big companies rolled it out, before you know it, uh, a, a number of other com companies in similar process industries did. And then it's, it, it rolled out very quickly across the U.S. and then Europe. Scandinavia was the first area in Europe to pick it up. Denmark, uh, followed very quickly by Sweden. The, the Scandinavians always seem to be fast out of the gate uh, when new things come along. And then before you know it, in, in your country, Ray, and, uh, and Germany and, and, and other European, continental European countries. So it just started with two big companies, largely because of friends, and grew from there. Brilliant. And looking at now, we sit here in 2020 in unprecedented times, to say the least, Looking back at recent times and most importantly, looking forward, what's next for StageGate? Where's it evolving to? Because I'm guessing now over years, people, the community have contributed to the methodology and given you some really interesting feedback. So where do you see StageGate 2020 and beyond? You're, you're so right, Ray. The community has been an enormous uh, laboratory or laboratory to improve the process. In fact, we're into our fifth generation version of the process now. So if, if, if a company is using the classic stage gate, uh, you know, from 20 years ago, it's, it's been superseded many times and you owe it to yourself to look into the newer versions, which are faster, better, cheaper, more effective. Uh, the, one of the biggest uh, changes, of course, that drove the new generations was the fact that the world was changing so quickly, markets changing so quickly, and also information was was very fluid. Things that were true one day were not true the next day. And so uh, the newer model and the newer versions of StageGate had to deal with the fact that things were changing and also things were, 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 were had to be therefore much more adaptive and flexible. And as a result, um, we started borrowing concepts from the software world, uh, namely agile uh, development methodologies, which deal with fluid, fluid information and unstable and uncertain situations, and started building them into uh, more traditional stage gate to come up with what we now call agile stage gate, which is really the fifth generation process. And that's been one of the most significant changes, Ray, um, in, in the last, say, 10, ye 10 years, 15 years. Uh, a handful of companies started doing it in Europe. A handful of companies started doing this in the U.S., and before you know it, uh, this new emergent uh, hybrid agile and stage gate combined uh, started to become increasingly popular and with, with darn good results, too, I might add. So that's been a key. And I guess the other big key uh, is the fact that uh, many companies, uh, StageGate, by the way, was originally developed for and by uh, companies that made physical products. 
I, I mentioned two companies already. One was in the uh, both were happened to be in the in the polymers and chemicals business, but also uh, large uh, companies such as Procter and Gamble and GE and others adopted StageGate quite quickly. Uh, they're typically physical product companies or traditional companies. Uh, traditional companies, which still account for 75% of R&D spending in, in the United States, uh, you know, physical product companies, that is, are, are now, as you know, building software into their classic products uh, to make them smart products. So whether you're, from, whether you're in the packaging business or the food business or, or the medical device business, uh, lots and lots of software is being built in. And, of course, the question then becomes, how do you handle a new product project where half the project team are traditional mechanical, electrical, or chemical engineers, and the other half of the team are all software code writers? And, and of course, uh, some kind of an agile or a, a process like Agile StageGate seems to work best for both these different types of teams and, and, and can unify them and, and bring them together in a single single process and single project. So that's been another major change smart products yeah so this is interesting this kind of links to one of my favorite investors bob mark andreessen he yes. coined the term back in 2011 saying software is eating the eating the world uh, and that phrase when i first read that piece it's stuck in my mind since 2011 and sitting here in 2020 now it, it could not be more true the way mm-hmm. software's way at so many different industries so many different processes, it's unprecedented. So, and then this links to pre-COVID when we could fly, we were attending a, a customer gathering and it, there was some interesting debate and conjecture in the room talking about can StageGate really work well in the rise of AI applications? So, so many of our clients now mm-hmm. are deploying AI across all of their business units because it's completely transforming where their organizations are heading and, and also in response to customer demand. So what are your thoughts on StageGate being applied to AI applications? Because men, some thought leaders have touched upon it doesn't really work well. What, what are your thoughts on that, on how StageGate can evolve to really address AI applications? Well, AI, of course, is largely from the IT and software world, which is where the Agile methodology was developed, largely in the U.S., Palo Alto, California, Silicon Valley, back in the 1990s. In in those days, the software folks uh, were not doing very well at product development, and it's a good thing it was such a growing industry and was a very forgiving one. But every time you'd meet these guys at a conference, there's invariably when they talked about their projects, they were uh, behind schedule, uh, over budget, and very often the product when launched didn't work anyway. So they had to re- uh, launch release 2, 2.1, 2.2 to get all the fixes in. And they came up with Agile, and it was a heck of a good method for the software world. Now, fast forward 10 or 15 years after that, and so, so that's why artificial intelligence uh, being part of that software or IT world would, 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 would fit very nicely with Agile. Fast forward to this century and, and, and a handful of companies uh, in Europe, for example, one of the first I saw was Lego Education in, in Billund in Denmark, uh, starting to use, uh, started to combine their software, their digital development groups with their hardware groups to come up with new educational products, software and hardware based using an agile stage gate approach. In fact, the term agile stage gate was coined by 
um, Danish researchers about 2015. So what they were doing was taking the best from Agile, and Agile has some very good features, and combining it with the best from StageGate. And when when they did that, they had to throw away some of the traditional components of StageGate. This classic StageGate relied on classic project management techniques, such as Gantt charts and critical path plans and milestones and timelines. All that's classic project management. They threw that out and they put in agile project management into the stages of StageGate. So they got that aspect. But what agile lacks, Ray, and this is a very important thing, and this has been pointed out to me by a number of, of industry experts, agile lacks gates. And gates perform a very, very important function in any new product project, be it AI or a medical device or developing a new vaccine. The gates are the point where management sits down with the project team and says, okay, guys, uh, what have you done to date? How are things looking? What's the progress? And is this still a good project? It's where management intervenes and either supports or kills the project. It's where management provides the resources that the project team needs in order to move on to the next phase. Very, very critical. And the other thing that Gates do is they kill bad projects. Most companies' development portfolios are full of a lot of mediocre uh, projects that probably should have been killed months ago. But nobody does because there's no Gates. They just go on. And and that's one of the faults of Agile. Uh, It's a very efficient process for developing software. But maybe so they may get it done efficiently, but it may be the wrong project and not a very good project in terms of financial rewards, et cetera. So that's what the, that's a very important part that that uh, Agile StageGate brings. It basically brings the best of both worlds together, and and a number of software companies have adopted uh, Agile StageGate. It's a little bit easier for for hardware companies who are familiar with StageGate to adopt it because they're just replacing one form of project management with another, um, with the, putting you know throwing out classic project management, putting in Agile project management, but they're still keeping StageGate. So for them, it's a bit easier, but I think it has equal applicability to the software world, and that would include artificial intelligence, Ray. So, Bob, you raise a wonderful point here, and we're seeing this a lot in the last three years. We were speaking to one of one of our key clients who leads R&D, a world-famous consumer packaged goods company, and he was talking about he's completely reimagined his recruitment philosophy, Bob, for R&D. So on a broader level, is that a a trend you're seeing across the board, folks who are technically gifted, that's table stakes and research and development innovation, mm-hmm. but also they've got marketing chops, they've got sales chops, they can engage the rest of the team. Is that is that a is that a broader trend do you think is gonna further kind of grow in industry? I'd be hesitant to say that I'm seeing it take place, but I sure would say that I'd like to see it take place because I think that firm, that client firm of yours is right on. Um, far too many technical people um, with their bachelor's and master's and PhD degrees in engineering or science uh, have very, very limited marketing and communication skills and, and, and even less willingness to engage and interface with customers. Uh, you know, I, I, I can remember, Ray, just to tell a little story on the side, I was giving a seminar in the UK uh, a few years back, and uh, and there was this woman, a very, very sharp lady who sat in the front row with her PhD in, in chemistry. 
And I was talking about how important it was for the project leader and her team to get out there and do face-to-face uh, interviews with prospective uh, commercial customers in her case, and how it was critical for the whole team to get out there, not just the sales and marketing department folks, but the R&D folks from the lab to touch real customers, understand their points of pain, understand what was keeping them awake at night, uh, and, 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 and commit to solving their problems and coming up with a great new product. She looked at me and said, Bob, that's fine and well, but I have a PhD in chemistry. I wasn't trained to do that. That's not my job, and I'm not going to do it. And, of course, you sort of look at her and say, well, you know, do you, do you want to be successful in product development? If you do, forget the fact that you just got a PhD in chemistry. Get out there and talk to customers. It's critical. That's the difference between winning and losing. So I would like to see a lot more of that built in. Now, part of it, Ray, of course, is personality. Some people are just outgoing and uh, gregarious, etc. Part of it is training. I think some of that can be trained, and we try to in the in the in the programs I'm working with uh, in Canada, for example, where I'm located uh, in Toronto. Um, the Canadian government finance sponsors us and others to work with smaller business uh, to to help them develop new products. They're all technically very clever people, typically. But they lack this market orientation. And so a good part of our training is on voice of customer, how to do it, how to talk to customers properly. And it's tough getting people who are software writers or electrical engineers uh, you know, thinking that way. So I'd like to see it. I think that package goods firm company that you talked about is right on, uh, but it's got to be right across the board, not just in that industry. One thought leader we track a lot here at PatSnap, and again, we're probably talk about him a lot internally. And again, he's on a lot of our PowerPoint presentations is Ray Kurzweil. Mm-hmm. And he's published a number of fascinating pieces. And he really talks about, we are living in special times, Bob, mm-hmm. an era of unprecedented exponential innovation, mm-hmm. driven by a number of uh, force factors and macro forces. So based on that kind of underpinning, what are some of the pit- pitfalls you see ahead? between now and 2025, 2030, what are some of the emerging challenges that you're seeing in the current innovation processes out there? Do they need to evolve? Are there some kind of big landmines out there that R&D organizations, innovation practitioners need to be aware of? Well, that's a a tough question, uh, Ray, because uh, uh, don't you wish you, you sort of could crystal ball gaze the future, especially coming out of this pandemic where uh, many people are predicting uh, this is going to be a whole new world. Um, on the po- It's easy to talk about the positive side of innovation uh, because uh, based on the, new, the newer technologies that are coming to fruition, wh- whether they're artificial intelligence or quantum mechanics and quantum computing, this is, you know, electric vehicles, you, you name it. There's so many technologies that are reaching the springboard point of just taking off. Um, and so the world's going to be a very different place in the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, I, I guess the big dangers are, is that we don't get so mesmerized by this possibility that we start thinking that everything is good. Uh, I, I can recall uh, as a kid, uh, reading a, a popular mechanics, which is a very popular book that often young boys read 
back in those days about how we are going to have flying cars by the year, I don't know, 1970, et cetera. You know, and, and as kids, we're just mesmerized by Sputnik and the prospect of flying cars and space trips and what have you. Well, you know, here in 1970 or 1980s come and gone and we're still not having, uh, well, we may have one of these days, but we're still not flying to the moon for, for vacations or holiday and we're still not seeing the flying cars and so on. So you got to be a little careful that you don't become so mesmerized that you throw caution to the wind. Um, I mentioned before, Ray, that about that a, a significant number of projects that get initiated and, and invested in come to nothing. I, I think that the, according to the U.S. data, and this is American data from the Product Development and, uh, and Management Association, the PDMA, uh, of every four projects that are approved for development, that means heavy spending, uh, only one out of four becomes a commercial success, which suggests to me that there's an awful lot of people saying yes to projects that probably will come to nothing. And I think we've got to be careful about that. Um, it's easy to say yes, 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 uh, and be a little bit dazzled by the possibilities of the future. But one also has to be recognized one is investing scarce resources and shareholders, of course, expect returns and if you want to keep your job, you've got to be successful. So so that's one of the, the concerns I have is that we still need uh, thoughtful investment about where we want to place our resources as businesses. And and by all means, new product development is critical um, and or new business model development, um, especially coming out of this recession. The last great recession uh, from in 2010 taught us that the companies that did well in the 10 years that followed between 2010 and 2020, they were the ones that continued to invest in R&D and product development and, and, and focus on innovation. The ones that cut back, they didn't do very well in that 10-year period that followed. So it's important to keep the focus on innovation and new products and not cut back like so many companies have recently during the pandemic. But it's also critical to recognize you need a good strategy and also, you have to take some care about where you say yes and where you say no, where you put your R&D dollars, and perhaps more important, the projects you say no to. So portfolio management and a good gating process are two tools that will help you there. Do you see any interesting examples of how data and analytics is being overlaid with stage gate? Do you see some form of convergence potentially in the future? It's kind of where the system of record becomes the system of intelligence where you have workflow and analytics mm-hmm. partnering together. Is that, a, is that anything that you've seen in terms of some of the, the audience and the community that you work with? Absolutely, Ray. Uh, and an excellent topic for discussion. Um, we, a, a colleague in Germany and I wrote a paper recently that appeared in a journal or magazine called Innovation Management. And it was called uh, The Digital Transformation and Its Impact on product development. And that was one of the the themes, um, how uh, artificial intelligence and data analytics and those tools generally in that category are impacting on product development. For example, uh, and today uh, many companies, including uh, the British company AstraZeneca, is focusing on developing a new vaccine. Hopefully they're successful, the Oxford Uh, the Oxford vaccine. So are some American companies and German companies and and, and Chinese and others. Um, 
they're using artificial intelligence, data analytics, uh, 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 to to basically select candidate molecules or candidate uh, solutions for, for the problem, and and really accelerating the process of developing a vaccine. That's not happening just in the area of pharmaceuticals, by the way. That's happening in a number of areas. Uh, uh, from things that you might even consider a little trivial, I was uh, chatting with one uh, company that was in the area of custom dress design and manufacture for ladies for for social events, and and they were using data analytics to analyze Facebook pages and to see if they were going to special events or if some uh, woman was talking about going to her son's graduation or and I don't have a thing to wear. And they were analyzing all that information, looking at some pictures of her what kinds of dresses she looks good in, what kinds of colors seem to suit her. And they were custom design using artificial intelligence address based on an analysis of that data and send her a picture and say, would this dress suit your son's graduate, suit you for your son's graduation? And, and of course, uh, you, you sort of say, well, you know, interesting application, but I guess the world's coming to that. So I'm seeing a lot of use of, of these types of tools more and more so to not only develop the product, uh, or assist in the speedy development of the product as they are in the pharmaceutical industry right now, but also even in the conception and coming up with the ideas in the first place as this dress manufacturer uh, was was doing. We're seeing enormous use of these new digital technologies to accelerate and enhance product development, uh, not only in, in the areas I've just described, but also in terms of coming up with rapid prototypes and virtual prototypes and augmented reality prototypes. FedEx, the large U.S. company that the, in the delivery business uses artificial intelligence, sorry, uh, uses virtual reality to test new uh, drop-off uh, products and containers before they even appear in people's homes. They bring people into their lab, put virtual reality goggles on and, and have them um, imagining they're already using the product without even having it. So we're seeing a lot more of that type of, of use. I know that's a little beyond your question, but digital technologies are playing an increasingly big role in product development to uh, con- help companies conceive, develop, and even launch the products. So, yeah, key area now, for the future. Now, Bob, this is absolutely brilliant. Our audience love your broad perspective and, and your your breadth of experience and I'm guessing you've got so many stories of fascinating organizations you speak to and, and have worked with over the years. So it's interesting now going into 2021, especially after this year. It's been an interesting year, to say the least, and a challenging year for so many people in so many different ways. Looking at the, the bright side in terms of innovation and R&D, we are speaking with and hearing in the market that we are potentially entering a special era, Bob, in the next eight, nine years of potentially by the end of this decade, the innovation process potentially could be fully digital. I know that's a, a long shot, mm-hmm. but we just would love your professional opinion on, do you see that as a reality in the next kind of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years where even when it comes to ideation, it's actually executed by a piece of AI. Do you, do you see a future like that in, in eight, nine years? Ray, we're already sort of moving in that direction now. There are some software producers who produce software in support of product development. Uh, there are several American companies. I, I, I shouldn't mention any names here, 
this is not a commercial for them. Uh, and there's also uh, several European companies that have superb software uh, packages that support um, R&D departments, that support new product project teams and, and, and their management. And they do everything from uh, embedding stage gate through to portfolio management to handling ideas. I was at a conference recently of one of these companies in the U.S. and was quite amazed at how, how they are now and thinking for the future of building in a lot of these uh, analytical techniques, data analytics uh, into their, including artificial intelligence, into their software, um, not only for um uh, enhancing it for coming up with the ideas, but also accelerating development and also even for project selection. Can you imagine um, uh, software that says do this project, but artificial intelligence that says do this project, but not that project? There's actually a, a company, a venture capital company, I believe it's in Hong Kong, that has put an artificial intelligence robot on its investment board. And, and, you know, after studying a number of past investments, it learned. And this robot is now making better calls than the rest of the members of the investment board. This has been happening for a couple of years now. So I can see that happening also within the stage gate process that the management gatekeepers may have an extra gatekeeper called an artificial intelligence robot sitting at that meeting and, and helping to make calls. So this is already starting to happen. And uh, Ray, if you hear of anybody that wants to pursue this, I'd be happy to talk to them with your help and, and involvement um, in, in pursuing this. There have been several requests to me that companies are starting to think about doing this already. We see so much talk and conjecture around this topic. And, and, and on a broader note, we feel quietly bullish the next five, six years is going to be fascinating, Bob, in this space but it's going to be a community effort. I think no one organization or group of people will make this happen. It's going to be a community effort and there's so many ways to slice and dice it, but it was great to get your overview on that perspective of data and analytics and how it plays into that innovation workflow. So just to wrap up then, so Bob, today's been wonderful. It's been great getting your global perspective and, and all the, all the stories and all the experience you have in this space. On a broader note, so so here at PatSnap, there's a number of uh, of our team are who are huge fans of Elon Musk. He's the rise of what I call the R and D facing CEO. So what what I mean by that is, if you said to Elon, if you could do any other job, what would it be? He'd probably say, "I'd be with the R and D team. I'm an engineer." Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing that with Microsoft with Satya Nadella. He was originally from the R and D organization, mm -hmm. and he's doing a stunning job with Microsoft since Steve Ballmer. Do you see that as a trend moving forward where boards of large companies prefer having a, a leader from that deep technical background who was formerly a leader in R&D and commercially leading an organization? Is that a, a macro paradigm that you see just constantly scaling in the future? I hope so. You know, for a number of years there, everyone looked to Steve Jobs before his untimely death as the as that kind of a leader, too, because, as you recall, he and Wozniak started uh, there were a couple of technical tinkers starting in his garage to, to build Apple from nothing. Um, and, and, you know, Hewlett and Packard, you know, the way back in the beginning, uh, they, too, had a similar background, both engineers. I think they were out of some California technical university. Um, 
so we've had a long story of highly charismatic and highly innovative technical people be the people that have led and built these great companies. It, so this is not a new phenomenon with Elon, Elon Musk. This has been around for a hundred years, and I, I suspect and hope it does continue because look what they've managed to do. Uh, going, you know, reading through the history of R and D and great inventions and great innovations in in, in more modern times, uh, you know, this century and the last century, uh, it's been the story of these men and women. Um, I suspect it'll continue on. Uh, I would like to see most, uh, you know, I think one of the most unfortunate things, and I apologize to my friends in the financial community, I think one of the most unfortunate things that happened in the UK and in the US is uh, the rise of the financial person in these large companies, whose basic uh, focus was on the next quarter quarter's results, a very short term orientation and maximizing value to the shareholder, which invariably meant a very short-term orientation. And under those folks, R&D and innovation often was discouraged. I'd like to see those folks, at least in many companies, replaced with the kind of people we're describing now, the entrepreneurial innovation, technically uh, trained person leading the charge. I think that would be a very uh, breath, a good, strong breath of fresh air versus the financial drivenness that we've seen for the last couple of decades. Yeah, we're definitely quietly champions of that school of thought as well. We, we absolutely love and adore these first principles thinkers who lead these amazing organizations because they inspire us every day here at PatSnap as well. But Bob, thank you so much for today, getting your perspective on StageGate, the history, where you see things moving forward has been absolutely fascinating today. And I'm sure our audience can't wait to hear your perspective so really appreciate your time today and, and thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, you have a have an awesome week. Thank you then and good luck and be safe. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bob Cooper, for his time today, for sharing his thoughts on what's in store for the future of StageGate and the importance of adapting your innovation management framework against the changing technology climate. If you're looking for ways to elevate your innovation strategy beyond 2020, we're offering access to a free ebook that explores the relevance of the StageGate process when developing your innovation strategy and its role in assessing levels of risk. It's titled, How to Build and Manage an Innovation Strategy in a Data-Driven World. And it's available for download today at patsnap.com forward slash tag forward slash ebook. Grab your copy now. Thank you so much for tuning into today's inaugural episode of Innovation Capital. We will be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you enjoyed today's show, please hit the subscribe button and share this out with one person whom you feel would benefit from today's interview. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.